let's open God's Word. We want to listen to God's Word. We want to hear it read and preached and explained and applied. And I want to bring to you a message from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you would open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5, a message entitled, The Right Attitude Towards God. The Right Attitude Towards God. It's not just our actions that matter to God. It's also our heart, our attitude, and then the behavior that then follows our heart attitude. And that's what Solomon is getting at here in chapter 5 in these first seven verses. King Solomon writes, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is Havel. Rather, fear God. Fear God. Well, this really is the center of the book of Ecclesiastes. Not if you took all the verses and chapters and divided it in half, but the theological center. It's the center of the book, which he'll come back to the same subject at the very end. The fear of God. Our response to God. Our heart attitude towards God. Now a church needs to have, must have, a high view of God. A church has to have a high view of God to properly worship God. To even understand who God is. To even get a a small inkling of our God and Father. We must understand that the Bible presents Him with a very high view. And we really can't even compare how much higher God is to us. There is no comparison. God is infinite. God's majesty is infinite. His glory is infinite. But if we have a failure in the church to have a high view of God, that's going to lead to a wrong view of worship. It's going to lead to toleration of sin. Lack of a high view of God in the church leads to a man-centered church, a man-centered worship. Churches that don't care about people living in sin, running into sin. Churches that literally fall apart due to sinful desires. Well, we want to have a high view of God because the Bible calls us to do that. The purpose of the church is to glorify God the Father. We do that. We do that through God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're here today. It's not to be necessarily evangelistic, although there is always an evangelistic tone in Scripture. It's not just to have fellowship, but it's to worship our God together. It's to gather together and worship our Holy Lord. Well, before Solomon got to this section in Ecclesiastes, he's been telling us some different things about the world. First, he told us what he was searching for to see if he could find meaning, if he could find the answer to life, if he could find something that would be left over after he died. So he did that in a couple of chapters in the beginning of the book. By the time he got to chapter 3, he had ended his search and basically said, Enjoy what God has given you and stop looking for things to worship other than God. Stop looking for idols to worship, work, pleasure, things. And then in chapter 3, he started to turn now to tell us that he's observed certain things in the world. And the first thing was that God has set up everything, that God has timed everything, that God is sovereign over everything. He's providentially in control. And then he dealt with some objections to God's providence because people always have objections to God being sovereign over us. We want to complain. We want to object. How can that be? That's not what we've been taught. That's not what our world believes. That's not what our country believes. 
So he dealt with those objections. And they even went into chapter 4. Chapter 4, he just talked about the different things that he's observed in life and how to properly think about them as followers of God. But now, this is really the first time he's turned and focused on a section just about God and just about how we worship God. How do we worship God? It would be good for us to go back and just trace what he's already said about God. Even though he's been observing, even though he's been looking at the world under the sun, man's perspective. It's not like this is the first time he's addressed God. He has uh, addressed things about God. He has mentioned God a few times already. Start with me in chapter 1, verse 13. He says here, And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. He's talking about the curse. He's talking about the result of the fall. Adam and Eve sin, and things are harder in life now. There's sin. There's consequences of sin. There's suffering. Work is harder. And it's frustrating. And God has designed it that way. That's part of God's plan. That when Adam and Eve sinned, just like he told them, they would die. And there would be hardship. And there would be suffering. Now 2.24, we see a bit more positive verse here. There is nothing good in a man that he is able to drink, to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Anything good comes from God. Even though we've been afflicted to suffer, even though we're supposed to learn from sin and its consequences, God has given us good things in life. God didn't say, live your whole life, and then when you get to heaven, it will be good. That is true. But he also said, I'm going to give you some good things along the way. Even the person that's suffering the most in life can still look at God and what God has done and say, you've given me good things. You give me breath. You give me one more day to live. All of those things are good. 2.26, jump down to verse 26 here in chapter 2. For to a person who is good in his sight, He has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is Hevel and striving after wind. So sinners gather up. They pile up their wealth and things. And when it's all said and done, those things just shift over to the category of God's people. Either when Christ comes back and it all shifts over to a different category, to a different column in the ledger, or even throughout our lives. We see people build up things. We see people build buildings. We see people build uh, different things in life, and then they get given to God's people. Or you get an excellent deal on them. Or we get a good rent on a building like this. And the Lord is good to us in those situations, of course. Chapter 3 now, he really starts to talk about God's providence and what God has done. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men, with which to occupy themselves. So again, just talking about the things we're supposed to be doing in life. It's hard. It's under the curse. And verse 11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in the heart, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. So God has designed every second, every moment of your life, no matter what happens. Even if it's bad, God's not directly causing it, but it's all part of his plan. And if you're his, if you're a believer, he will work that out to his good purposes and even for your good. But you can't figure all those things out, it says. He set eternity in our hearts because we're looking forward to eternity. Even the unbeliever, they don't realize it sometimes. They might say they're an atheist, but God has put eternity in every heart. But we can't figure out what's coming next. We can't figure out the beginning from the end. We're not God. And that'll come up over and over in this book. Verse 14 of chapter 3. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Everything God has done is so that men should fear him. And we'll define what fear of God is by the end of today's sermon. But God is designing things so that people would fear him. Verse 15, that which is has been already, that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. God's the only one who knows everything that's already happened, everything that will happen. He's the only one that can search out those things throughout 
the past and the future. And verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter, for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. So those are the lessons he's already tried to teach the reader. He's tried to teach us about God. That God's in control, that God is sovereign. That man has uh, been suffering under the curse because of sin. But God still gives us good things. And we're to think about eternity. And if you're a follower of God, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, that includes worshiping now as we get ready for eternity. So he stops in the middle here and just gives a list of things we should consider when we worship, when we have a relationship with God, when we say things to God. We ought to be careful. We ought to think about things. And so he gives a list of commands here, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to go through these seven commands. There's, there's seven commands regarding the right attitude and behavior. Because he's going to move from attitude into some actions that we need to be careful of. The right attitude and behavior a person should have towards God. And mainly this is in the two categories of worship and promises. We've got to be careful how we worship God. And he's going to give some commands on that. We've got to be careful the promises we make to God. And he's going to give some commands on that. So those are the two Major categories, worship and promises. Worship in verses 1 through 3, promises to God in 4 through 7. But I've just listed all seven as we go through. You'll see them come up on the screens and not really uh, done it in subsets of those two categories. But I want you to know he's dealing with worship and promises. Well, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, he's going to start by telling us that we ought to, number one, come to worship with reverence. We ought to come to worship with reverence. If God is holy, if we should fear Him, and He's already told us God has designed things in us and in the world so that we should fear Him, we ought to come to worship with reverence. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. The house of God was the temple in Solomon's day. Solomon had built the temple. Previous to that, it was the tabernacle. And the word for guard here in Hebrew means to proceed with reverence. Watch your step. Be careful what you do as you go into the house of the Lord. Even as you go up to the temple, he's saying. It's not just when you walk through the door, but before that. This reminds us and is very similar in theology to Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. You remember Moses saw the burning bush and he went up on the mountain to see what that bush was. Why, why was it burning? What is this fire? And God starts speaking to him. And God said to Moses, Do not come near me. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It was holy space because God was there. He manifested his special presence there. He spoke to Moses there. And God is saying, Be careful, Moses. Realize who you're dealing with here. This is a holy God. Now, we don't go to the temple and worship today. The temple's gone. We're new covenant believers anyway. The temple has been destroyed for almost 2,000 years. But Jesus said before that temple had been destroyed, he told the woman at the well, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he's talking about the attitude of the heart. The spirit there is, is the whole person, the heart, your being. You're worshiping God with your whole person. And truth is according to God's word. Because later Jesus will say, your word is truth. So we must worship according to our whole person, according to the word of God. Now Ephesians 2 says the church is God's household now. Not the building. This is not like the temple building, but the people. As we gather, that is God's household, he says in Ephesians chapter 2. He also calls it God's dwelling in the Spirit. So to apply to us, we need to say 
that we need to guard our steps as we come to worship God together in a corporate body. We need to proceed with caution. Not that we're scared that we might stumble up the stairs, literally. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, make sure your worship is God-centered. That it reflects a biblical view of God. Worship should be God-centered and gospel-focused. That's part of our mission, our philosophy of ministry here. Too many churches today are man-centered. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you want to hear about blessings. They never talk about sin. And Solomon is saying, be careful as you approach the house of God, whether it was a temple in his day or the church today. Worship's meant to be the supreme and only indispensable activity of the Christian church. We can't get rid of worship. We cannot have equipping classes and Sunday school classes. We cannot have Bible studies on Wednesday night. We can't stop having worship as a church. And we have to focus that worship on the God that's revealed to us in Scripture. Now, acceptable worship is always a response to God, and it's involving our sacrifice. So when we come here, we're sacrificing a lot of things. We're supposed to be giving our whole body as a sacrifice to God, Romans 12. We sacrifice our time. We might sacrifice relationships to be part of the church, to be Christian. We sacrifice, sacrifice in our giving. We sacrifice in our service. It's sacrificial. And as we worship, we address God. And we're mindful of His existence, His character, and His mercy to us through Christ. We don't just sit here and say God a thousand times and make up our own image of God. We have to understand who He is according to Scripture. There has to be teaching on that throughout the time in the church. There has to be teaching on who God is and what He's done for us and His mercy to us in Christ. So how do we come to worship here at Grace Bible Church with reverence to God? How do we apply this? Well, we've got to prepare for worship by obeying God. We can't live a life of sin all week and then show up on Sunday thinking we're prepared for worship. We have to obey throughout the week, every day, as we're being sanctified, as we're growing in holiness, so that we're guarding our steps as we go on Sunday to the house of God. Psalm 17, verse 4, As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped, he says. I followed your path, Lord. I followed your path through my life. I haven't slipped off and gone into a lifestyle of sin. Now, Psalm 15 addresses who gets to abide in God's tent. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, in your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy hill? That's how it starts out. And the rest of the psalm is actually telling us who that person is, what he looks like, how he lives. So the next verse, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. You can't live like the devil all week and then come on Sunday, check the box that you are at church and say, I'm a Christian. I've done my duty to God. I showed up and blessed all those people at church on Sunday. Go to Proverbs. Go back to Proverbs chapter 4. And verse 20. And listen how Solomon teaches his son on how to live and prepare yourself for worship. Proverbs, just a few pages back, Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Listen to what I'm teaching you. Don't forget about it. Don't go throughout your week and just forget about the Lord. Keep them in the midst of your heart for their life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. What comes out of your heart is your life. You do what your heart desires. What you desire to do, that's what you do. Now, if you're redeemed, if you have a new heart, then what comes out often is godliness. Now you stumble along the way and you have a lot to do in growing in your own holiness. But if you have an evil, sinful heart, out from the heart flows sin. 
and sinful desires and sinful actions. But even the Christian has to watch, has to be careful. God has not perfected us yet. We're not 100% holy right now. So watch over your heart, he says. Be careful. Put away from, your, from you a deceitful mouth. Watch your mouth and how you speak. And put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Don't get distracted by other things in life. Look straight ahead at what you're supposed to be doing. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, how you live, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. You've probably known that person who comes up and says they're saved. And as months go by, they start to deviate from the Christian path. And it's not long before you don't even see them. They don't come to church. They don't talk about things of the Lord. It's as if they're not even a Christian. And Solomon says, be careful how you live. Prepare yourself as you come and worship. So that's really the main thing we could do. There are other things we could do to prepare ourselves. We could get a good night's sleep, not stay out late, not get up and fight with our spouse, not come with a sinful attitude. We can forgive others so that we're not coming to church with some kind of unforgived issue that we have to deal with. Live a godly life is the best way to prepare yourself to come and worship. Second command that he gives us here, still in verse 1. These are commands, these are imperatives, and draw near to listen. This is listen and obey God's word. Number two, listen and obey God's word. So be careful how you come up to worship. Be careful how you come in to worship. Have reverence for God and listen to his word. And listen implies obedience. When Solomon says listen, he's presupposing that there's something being spoken, that someone at the temple on that day was speaking the word. There was teaching going on. Draw near and listen to the teaching. Priests are going to be reading scripture about the sacrifices. They're going to be teaching the person what it means. They're supposed to remind them of what these sacrifices mean. At celebrations where the whole nation would come up, there would be a lot of teaching on the history of Israel. In other words, God's word is being read, explained, taught to the people. So they would hear God's word throughout that time they were at the temple. We need God's word. We need it because, first of all, we need to know who God is. And we need to know how to be saved. And then once we're saved, we need to know how to be sanctified. And that's a lifelong journey. We need God's word. We need it every day. We need it in our worship as we gather together. One commentator, Ian Proven, he says, The first requirement laid on God's people in the Old Testament was not speak, O Israel, but hear, O Israel. And that exhortation is a common and insistent one, both in Deuteronomy and elsewhere. Hear, listen, and obey. Not tell me what you think. God didn't say, tell me what you think, Israel. Because when they did say what they thought, it was often sinful. It was often, get away from me, God. God says, listen, listen. And they even say to Moses, Moses, we're scared of God. You go up and you listen to God. Deuteronomy 5.27, you go near and hear all the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you. And we will hear it and do it. You go and you be the spokesperson. You be the preacher for God and we'll listen to you, they're saying to Moses. Well, here's how James in the New Testament says it, much more blunt. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. A hearer only deludes himself. I went to church. I heard the Bible read two Psalms. That was long scripture reading, long sermon, a whole passage. I mean, there's so much scripture in that sermon. I'm good. Be doers of the word. Don't delude yourself. Yes, you've got to hear it first. You've got to read it. You've got to understand it. But then live it out. Do it. Listening means obeying. You might remember in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15, Saul thinks he's done something great. He, he's conquered the people that God sent him out to conquer. But God had said destroy everything. And Saul didn't do that. Saul, King Saul did not do that. And so the prophet Samuel shows up speaking for God. And he says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
Saul had said, well, I gave some of it to God. I sacrificed some of it to God. And Samuel says, look, do you think God has delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? He has more, he says, in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination, practicing magic. To rebel against God is the same kind of sin as practicing magic. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now Saul would have said, well, I did something good. Now Saul, yeah, he did something good in his own mind, in his own heart. He did what he wanted. And Samuel says, no, you didn't obey God. That's what matters. That's what matters. And Saul wasn't trying to earn his salvation. He was just doing what he wanted to do. He claimed to already be a believer in God. And he was doing what he thought was good. We've got to listen to Scripture. Which means we have to have a high view of Scripture. The Bible's sufficient. It's sufficient to live the Christian life. We don't need to go read books like Jesus Calling and all that other stuff that's out there these days to try to figure out what God wants us to do in life. If you have that book, just throw it in the trash. You spend your whole life reading this. When you've memorized every word and every verse in this, then maybe then you can branch out and read some of that heretical stuff just to refute it out there. But until then, master this book. Master this book. It's the only place that we can go for counsel and wisdom from God. It's the only authority for the church. Well, why does this church do certain things? Because it says it in the Bible. It's the only authority for the church, how it should be governed, how we should worship, what should be done in the worship service, what a believer is held accountable to, and it mandates that we teach sound doctrine. We need sound doctrine, and it needs to be taught. If a church doesn't teach sound doctrine, then it's not a church. It's that simple. The Reformers said that, the early church fathers said that, and the Bible says that. A church must teach sound doctrine. Doesn't mean every church will have perfect doctrine. There's always going to be certain tertiary things that people might disagree on. But in general, the church needs to have sound doctrine. And the Bible's inerrant. That means it's without error. So when we hear it, we must obey it because it's God's inerrant word. You don't come on Sunday just to hear me tell stories. I'm not even that good of a storyteller. You don't come on Sunday to be entertained, to see smoke and lights. You come to hear the word of God. You come to worship God through his word. We sing his word. We pray back what's taught in his word. We hear his word read and preached. Verse by verse, preaching through books of the Bible. Now, it's common today for people to set aside the Bible. Take it out of the church. A lot of churches these days are just removing the pulpit. Put some candles up here. Pull up a few chairs, maybe a stool. We'll have some drinks to the side here. Coffee, water, whatever you want. And we'll have a dialogue. We'll have a discussion. A lot of churches do that. This was tried as a whole movement a couple decades ago called the Emergent Church. And they said, we don't want preaching because that doesn't get everybody involved. Let's set the preaching aside and have a dialogue. Let's have a dialogue. Let's hear what people think about a passage. You know what happened to that movement? It's gone. Now, there's still individual churches trying it, but it's gone. The leaders went into sin or heresy, and the whole thing fell apart. All the followers of those churches faded away. And if they were true believers, they went to other churches. And if not, who knows where they're at today. We've got to listen to God's word and those who teach it rightly. We can't be wanting to talk. We can't be wanting to just fellowship all the time. Or wanting to be teachers ourselves. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That's a real challenge for those of us who teach. We're held to a higher standard. Not only by you guys, but by God. So we better be careful. Well, he goes on still. Verse 1, he goes on, Rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, listen to God, know what to do when you worship. Because there's foolish people who went to the temple in that day and they offered up their sacrifice and they didn't care at all what they were saying, what they were doing, what their heart was 
feeling, thinking. They're foolish. They're just going through the motions. Here we go, God. I put this animal down. The priest has slaughtered it for me. Put it on the fire. Now do your thing, God. Forgive my sins like you said you would. It's a wrong attitude. It's a hypocrite. He's going through the motions, but it's not right. He's not right in his heart. He's a fool, Solomon says. And if you don't listen to God, you're going to make mistakes like that, foolish mistakes in worship. Why do churches make foolish mistakes in worship these days? Because they're not studying God. They're not listening to the Bible. They're making the sacrifice of fools. And it says they do not know they are doing evil. Now they knew what they were supposed to do with the sacrifice. That's all right. They could check boxes on the steps they did to offer the sacrifice and to have it all done by the priest. But what people would do is not be right in their heart towards God. Living a sinful lifestyle, not forgiving their brother who sinned against them, maybe practicing idolatry, worshiping other things than God. The sacrifice of fools is a careless view towards the worship of God. Just careless, just lackadaisical. You know, it doesn't matter. God loves us. We'll do what we want in worship. We will worship however we want. We'll eat popsicles for the Lord's Supper. Just have a big party. Just have people throwing things, food fight, whatever. That's the kind of stuff that goes on in churches today. One church brought a rodeo in. They cleared out their arena, put down sand, had a rodeo. Another one had a wrestling federation event on a Sunday morning as their church service. The kind of silly stuff that goes on out there. Sacrifice of fools. Dr. Bill Barrick says about a fool, he takes all the passages from Proverbs and he lists out these things that a fool does. They don't pursue wisdom. They have a spiritual, not a mental problem. They're not impaired mentally. That's not why they're foolish. They don't have a right heart towards God. They enjoy their foolishness, has no reverence for truth, and is a menace to society. That's what Proverbs says about a fool. Same author who wrote Proverbs, wrote Ecclesiastes. And he's saying, don't go to worship. Listen to God. Don't go to worship and be a fool. Because God hates that. We see this so much in modern Christianity. And even in solid churches, people come. They say, you know, I, I did what you told me, Lord. I found a biblical church that teaches sound doctrine. I went to church. Lord, bless me now. I went to church every time the door was open. Lord, uh, I gave money to the church. I did X, Y, Z to earn your favor, God. God doesn't bargain like that. Listen to God's word. Obey God's word. He does not bargain like that at all. Be careful how we go to the house of the Lord and listen and obey God's word. Now, number three, I promise this will be faster. Number three, be slow to speak before God. This is found in verse two. Another command, be slow to speak. Verse 2, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought, literally heart here. Don't be so quick in what you say and what you think. To bring up a matter in the presence of God. He's talking about prayer. Both here in verse 2 and he'll also be talking about prayer in verse 3. And corporate prayer or private prayers. Be slow to speak before God. Don't be hasty. Think about what you're going to say in prayer. Don't just babble a bunch of words to God and say, you know what? That's good. God says, however I can come to him, I'll come to him. Or they'll twist that verse in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit knows my inner groanings. So I'll just babble on a bunch of junk that sounds Christian, and God will do something for me. And Solomon says, don't think like that. Don't think so quickly, running through a bunch of words. Just saying God a thousand times or Father a thousand times, that's not prayer. Don't think you're twisting God's arms just because you can pronounce words. That's not how we're to pray. And the reason for not having such a hasty attitude towards God in prayer is because God is in heaven and you're on earth. You see how what we think of God even informs our prayer. God is in heaven, you're on the earth. Remember that when you pray. Remember who God is when you pray. Doesn't mean you have to use these and thou's. But don't just throw around words. 
sentences like they don't matter. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. If you're thoughtless, if you're hasty with your prayers, thinking that you're going to get what you want from God, stop doing that. Just slow down. Think about it. Think about what you want to say. Think about your thoughts. Turn off the distractions. Get in a quiet place if you're by yourself. Pray according to what you've been taught in Scripture. There's a great little book that we have here just about praying through the Bible. I don't know what to pray, Pastor. Well, pray back the Scriptures. It's, it's pretty easy. And then you can grow from there. Just pray back what God has already said. That's perfect. You can't mess up with that. Turn those into your own words. Go to the Psalms. Find a Psalm that you want to pray and pray it. And add your own words occasionally where you want to add them to your prayer. James Roscup, who's written a, a great exposition of prayers in the Bible. He was one of my professors in seminary. He even taught John MacArthur. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But he, he says on this verse, haste makes waste. Words that are cheap ring hollow, not holy as God discerns reality. One coming in haste, talking about a person coming in haste, without sincerity and forming and meaning in his worship, devalues God as just someone to be used at the impulse of lust to gratify one's own end. See, that's the point. People just mumble a bunch of words and say a bunch of what they think is some kind of Christian magical phrase or language to get what they want. He says, this cheapens God and it's a slam at his honor and the person wants him only as a grab bag, not as God. Give me what I want, God. I say all these magical incantations in my prayer, Christianese, and you have to give me what I want. Solomon says no. And James, in the New Testament, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow down. Think about what you want to say to God. Make it meaningful. It's not about volume. And I do encourage long times of prayer. But sometimes you might just be saying things, something and then being quiet. And then saying something and then thinking about what you're going to say next. That's okay. God's not just there for five minutes and then he's on to the next person. So you have to shove it all into five minutes. Slow down and think about it. Number four, pray with sincerity. The fourth command here is pray with sincerity. This means we should pray without pretense. Verses two and three. No deceit, no hypocrisy in our prayers. Don't pretend something before God. He says, therefore, let your words be few. At the end of verse 2. Let your words be few. He's not saying we should just pray short prayers. There are times when we will. We're supposed to pray throughout the day. So some of those are obviously going to be short. That's not his point here. He's saying when we are praying about a subject, about a situation, we should not go on and on about it thinking that'll do something to God. Let's lessen our words if that's the case. We're not going to twist God's arm to answer our prayer by just going on and on in that prayer about the situation. Now, we are supposed to pray regularly. Jesus says, continue to pray. So if God doesn't answer the prayer, and it's good and godly prayer, it lines up with what we're supposed to be praying for, then bring it back to God at a different time, of course. But don't think in your prayer that you're praying at that moment that you can just go on and on and on. Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Solomon knows a thing or two about saying too much. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Tying in even to the last point that we made. So don't be hasty. That was the third point. This is a little bit different here. Be sincere. Don't just continue on with your story to God. Summarize it. Because we can think we're trying to twist God's arm. God, let me tell you this four-hour story about what happened to me today. Guess what? God already knows. You don't have to review that with God. Get to the point and then move on to the next prayer request. Again, don't be hasty, though. This doesn't mean chop your prayer into a real quick few things. Don't be hasty. But you don't have to recount your life to God. We don't have to say a lot of words. 
Matthew 6, 7. When you're praying, Jesus says, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose they will be heard for their many words. They think they can really get something out of their God if they pray a lot of words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He wants you to ask Him, but He doesn't want you to just keep repeating it in the same prayer as if that's all you have to pray about. As if you can twist His arm if you say it enough times and get Him to do what you want. That's what Solomon's addressing. And that's what Jesus is saying. These pagans, they they twist the arm of their pagan deities and they get what they want. They think that. He says, don't do that. Now, he gives an interesting uh, backup for that in verse 3, Solomon does. An explanation, a proverb that most people today can't even understand. We have to dig in and try to figure out what he means. For the dream comes through much effort. What is he talking about? Now, the second part is pretty easy. The voice of a fool through many words. So whatever it is, it's related to the voice of a fool through many words. Now, the best interpretation is that this is not a dream that God has given. This is not like Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, who had a dream. It's not God speaking through a dream. It's not even a person at night sleeping and having a dream. This is like a daydream, a fantasy, that somebody is thinking how successful they're going to be, how blessed their future is going to be. And that person goes to great efforts to dream up the future and babbles on with words trying to convince God. God, I've got these great plans. Let me tell you about these plans, Lord. They have a dream in their mind, and they think if they say more to God about that, that God will answer them. With much effort, God, I've planned this out. Now I've got a lot of effort put into this prayer time. Solomon says, that's like a voice of a fool with many words. God can't be pushed to do what we want. This person has gone to great effort to dream up a future. And they're too busy telling God what ought to be true rather than listening to him tell us what is true. Now here's a great proverb. Go to Proverbs again, 17 and verse 24. Here's a proverb that really opens this up here. Proverbs 17, 24. Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding. So if you have understanding about God and the world and how God has designed things and what God has said in his word, if you have understanding of that, you have wisdom. But what else does he say here? But the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. They're not on God. They're not on God's word. They're not on worshiping God. They're on the ends of the earth. Which means that they're thinking about what is to come in the future. They're looking out on the horizon. What's coming up? What's next? What am I going to do in the future? Let me plan 50 years down the road. Let me plan 20 years down the road and not think about today. He's always talking about his dreams for the future, this fool is. But he's not able to focus on the present problems in his life. He hasn't given any thought to his salvation, his eternity. He has all these dreams. He's telling his wife all these things that they're going to do someday. All these blessings, but they never come true. Because he's not focused on now at all. It's a fantasy. I knew a man like this, a Christian even. He was always saying what he was going to do and never worked in the now to do any of it. His wife eventually left him because he kept telling her they were going to move into this place and go here and do that and have these wonderful dreams. But they never came true. He wasted all his time fantasizing about the future and not working in the present. And so Ecclesiastes 5.3 says, you're living a daydream, a fantasy world. If you think a bunch of silly words are going to have an effect on God. So he's dealt with worship there. He's going to now move into promises to God. So the fifth command he gives us, fulfill your commitments to God. It's a very simple statement. Fulfill your commitments to God. Starting in verse 4, when you make a vow to God, a vow is a promise made to God, particularly when you're in a difficult situation. In the Old Testament, if you are in a difficult situation, you are suffering trial, affliction, you make a vow to God. You want God to help you. You ask God. You're you're not necessarily seeking to twist His arm. You're just saying, God, please help me out of this. I'm going to dedicate whatever the person dedicated. Hannah dedicated her first son to the service of the Lord. If God would give her a child. 
So when promising a vow to God, people would dedicate a promise to give certain things. And this was voluntary. You did not have to make a vow. It was voluntary. You, you decided to do it. But once you decided, you need to fulfill it. You need to follow through. And even in the book of Acts, we see Christians, New Covenant Christians, making vows like the Apostle Paul and others in the book of Acts. Now, we don't necessarily make these kinds of vows today that they would have made back then, following the Old Covenant laws on how to do the vow. But we do make similar oaths and vows today. By the way, Jesus wasn't saying we should never uh, make a promise or make an oath in Matthew 5. You might be thinking of that passage when he says, you know, don't swear on this and don't swear on that. Don't take a vow on the temple. Don't take a vow on the city of Jerusalem. And he's addressing the integrity of the Pharisees. You see, they were going to lie and get out of something. And to convince the person they were dealing with, they would say, I swear on the temple. I'll give you your money back next month. And then they were gone. They didn't give the money back. And so Jesus is saying, have integrity. Don't swear on the things of God. Those things are holy. Just do what you're supposed to do and have integrity. So Solomon goes on here in verse 4. Don't be late in paying your vow. When you make a promise, do it, fulfill it. For he takes no delight in fools. God doesn't delight in being, uh, you being foolish. Pay what you vow. When God tells you to do something, do it. And when you tell God you're going to do something, do that. So you better be careful what you vow. You look at the book of Judges, I look up Jephthah, cool name, Jephthah, and see what happened when he vowed hastily. Be careful what you promise to God. Now, unbelievers do this all the time. I remember when I was a kid, I'd be suffering from some illness. God, if you heal me, I promise I will live right starting from the moment I'm healed. The kind of childish things that went through my head. Now, as a Christian, I, I understand what that means when you say that. Better be very careful. Very careful. It can become a form of bribery. Promise something to God to try and get out of some trial or affliction. Once the affliction's gone, then what? Forget about it. Not do what you said you were going to do. And if that's the case, verse 5, it's better that you should not vow it in the first place than you should vow and not pay. People make a vow, then after the crisis is over, they don't want to pay what they had vowed. Remember, it's voluntary. You enter into this agreement with God. This is a voluntary agreement. So be careful even now what you say. Lord, I'll do this. I'll move here. I'll go there if you just do this. If you're going to say that, you better fulfill what you promise. Number six, mean what you say. Very much connected to this. Fulfill your commitments to God. Number six, though, is mean what you say. Verses six and seven. So what's going to happen if you don't pay your vow? Well, somebody's going to come looking for that payment. And in verse 6, don't let your speech cause literally your body to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Here comes the priest to get the payment. You promise to give your sheep, promise to give a hundred shekels. You promise to give your house, which people did in a vow. Here comes the priest yeah, there's a problem, sir. Um, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have said that in the first place. You've now sinned double. You didn't intend to pay it in the first place, and now you've lied about it. Some people would lie with their mouth, which is a sin, by saying they had made a mistake and making the vow in the first place. And so Solomon says, why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Don't let that happen. Don't make a promise to God, and then he's going to destroy some work of your hands. Remember, he controls everything. And so he can certainly do that. When there's trouble in your life, you make a promise. You don't keep the promise. You double the sin by lying. And then later, something happens in your life. You might not even realize that's connected at all. But Solomon is warning us here. That's why Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond these is, an, uh, is of evil. It's evil. If you don't mean what you say, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't lie. Don't lie to God. Don't lie to people. But when God's discipline comes, it can destroy a previous work that we've done in a certain area of our life. It can be catastrophic. God wouldn't do that today, though, would he? That's just Old Testament God. 
We have God 2.0 now, the upgrade. A lot, of, a lot of churches teach, right? The God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? New covenant in the church. Everybody's selling property and donating their sale money to the church in Jerusalem. And Ananias and Sapphira say, you know, we got that field out there that Uncle So-and-so gave us. We sold it. And here it is. Here's the money for it. Well, they didn't give all the money. But they acted like they gave all the money. As if they had promised that they were going to give it all. Here's what Peter says in Acts 5. The apostle Peter, he meets with Ananias, the husband. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So maybe he had promised to God that he was going to do this. And to keep back some of the price of the land. And they fell down and died, both of them. Ananias first, and then they questioned the the wife as well. Instant death. Well, that's in the Old Testament. Well, Acts 5 is in the New Testament. And you saw what just happened there, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about the Lord's Supper. 11.27. God's not going to bring discipline or even punishment to the person who is really an unbeliever, or discipline to the believer, is he? Well, read Hebrews 12 about discipline, but look at this verse. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Unworthy. You're living a sinful lifestyle. Your life doesn't look at all like a Christian. And you come to the Lord's Supper and you proclaim to everybody when you take it that you're a Christian. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself first. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. They're dead. A number have died because of this, Paul says, because they were not doing what is commanded in the Scripture. And they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's in the New Testament. Let's watch our speech. Let's watch what we promise. Let's be trustworthy. Sometimes Christians will say, honestly, I'm telling the truth. And then they'll go on to state something. Well, you're a Christian. You don't even need to preface with, honestly, I'm telling the truth. I expect you to tell the truth. Let's cut that out of our vocabulary. Marriage vows. Keep your marriage vows. You vowed to God. You promised to God. You promised to your spouse. You promised that in a room full of people who are at your wedding. Church covenant. You made promises to your church. Every new member, and you'll see that next week, agrees to the covenant that we make together as a church. In baptism, you promise certain things. You promise that you are a believer, that you truly believe in Christ. You give that sign to the world that you're a Christian. The Lord's Supper Same thing. Keep your promises. For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness or havel. Remember, dreams are being out of touch with reality. Fantasies. And he's saying, you're dreaming if you think God is just going to wink at your sin and not discipline you if you're one of his children. He will. And if you're not one of his children, he'll judge you. Stop dreaming. Stop thinking you can get away with sin. Making promises and then lying about them. It's Havel. It's, it's nothing. It's a fleeting vapor. Don't do that. And all the words you speak, trying to excuse your sin, don't do that. Oh, it's not my fault. Someone else caused me to sin, God. Don't do that. All right, number seven, the last one, fear God. Fear God. It's really the solution to all of these issues that come up earlier in the passage. If we have a right fear of God, then we won't struggle as much with these things. We'll desire to grow in godliness in these things. So he just finishes off this section by saying, rather fear God. It's the most important one on the list. If you fear God, you'll be careful to do what has already been listed. Now, fear of God doesn't mean that you're scared, that you run away, you hide in the dark from God because you're so scared that he might judge you. That's unbelieving fear. That's terrifying judgment fear. That's what an unbeliever does. You read Revelation, they hide in the rocks in the ground, they hide in the caves, they're trying to get away from God. That's what people do in their hearts today that don't believe in Christ. 
That's not what a believer should have when it comes to the fear of God. We must fear God rightly. We must fear God rightly. A few passages to get your mind around this fear. Nehemiah 1.11. He's praying to God. And here's how he closes his prayer. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And the prayer of your servants, talking about Israel, who delight to fear your name. Believers in God delight to fear Him. It's a joy. It's something we want to do. It's a delight. You remember Paul in Philippians 2.12, what does he say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've been saved, now work it out in your life. Work it out. Work out that salvation. Work out your holiness. Continue to grow in your sanctification, he's saying. But do so in fear and trembling before God. Not because you're going to be judged, but because He is holy. He is righteous. He's a jealous God. And we should properly fear Him. One last verse, Jeremiah 33, 8. See the context here. He's talking about the new covenant that God has promised. The new covenant's coming. And He says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. So if you're saved today, this is describing you. I've Cleanse them. I will pardon all their iniquities, all their sins, by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. Talking about a future redeemed Israel that we're brought in, even as Gentiles who believe, we're brought in, grafted in, Paul says. And here's how Jeremiah finishes that in verse 9. They will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. God blesses you and your response. Thankfulness, yes. Trust, faith. Ongoing reliance upon Him, yes. But all of that can be under this umbrella of fear. A godly fear. A zeal. Think about a zeal, an intense zeal, a joy, a delight. They're going to fear and tremble because all the good and all the peace that God has given them. As Charles Spurgeon said, believers have to adore, they have to worship the living God with a joyful, tender fear. Fear is not joyful and tender. Well, it is when it comes to God. So we have to broaden our definition of fear. It doesn't work that well if we apply fear of man to fear of God. The believer has a right fear of God. Spurgeon says it's joyful, it's tender, which both it lays us low and it lifts us very high. For never do we seem to be nearer to heaven's golden throne than when our spirit gives itself up to worship him. So fear has to do with worship. Whom it does not see, but in whose realized presence it trembles with sacred delight. Previous Christians understood this better, I think, than we do. We've got such a watered-down teaching on God that He's our best friend. He'll do whatever we tell Him, whatever we ask for. He's there to bless us. And we've forgotten about the fear of God. We've forgotten that we've got to bow low before Him and He will lift us up high. It's a joy and a delight. He's God. We are not. He is in the heavens. We are on the earth. We have nothing to offer Him. He has everything to offer us. What can you give to God? that would better his life? What can you give to God? He controls everything. We control nothing. We must tremble. We must fear God rightly. I'll just close with the way that a, that a hymn says it. I think this describes the fear of God and the Christian. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fly to the fountain. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the fear of God in your life. You want to live holy. You want to please the Lord. And you understand who he is. Let's pray for that now. Lord, thank you for this passage. I hope it challenges us to live a holy life before you. Let's not um, downplay worship. Let's have a proper reverence, a proper fear, a proper awe. Let's look to the Lord, our Savior to be our advocate before you.
our Lord Jesus. And let's worship with caution, guard our steps, live our lives in a holy way, and keep our word. Let us keep our word, Lord. Let us be men that are trustworthy, women that are trustworthy, even the children here that follow you, trustworthy. Thank you, O Lord, for this passage. Let us live it out this week. In Jesus' name, amen.